Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Braco Diagnostics. Welcome once again to the MRI cast. I'm your host, Bill Faulkner. Thank you for joining us, and thanks again to Bracco Diagnostics for their generous sponsorship. Today's program is a very special program. We have a special guest with us. But first of all, let's get the usuals out of the way. From the sprawling metropolis of Roswell, Georgia, Kristen Harrington. Hello, Kristen. Hello, everybody from Hotlanta. And let me tell you, it is hot. It, yes, it is. It's the same here. And from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, up there in Madison, Wisconsin, His Excellency, the one, the only, Howard Raleigh. How are you, Howard? Well, thank you, Bill. It, it's the kingdom of Madison, actually. So, uh, Kingdom. Yes, kingdom. thank you. Kingdom of Madison. Good to be with you. His, it's his kingdom. It's his. His kingdom. Yeah. Well, you know. I always knew I would know somebody famous one of these days. But our very special guest, Dr. Carl Vegan. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're glad to do it. Uh, Carl, tell us just a little bit about yourself for so the folks will know a little bit your background, and then that'll uh, give them a clue as to what we may be talking about today. Yeah, so uh, I'm an MR physicist um, at the University of Wisconsin, so the same institution as Howard. Um, and yeah, I have a background in MR physicist. I work as a, you know, I'm not just on the research side. I work as a clinical MR physicist and help provide support to our radiologists and technologists and nurses, especially when they're making decisions about, you know, devices and whether we can scan patients with certain, certain devices. So, and that's really going to be the focus uh, of our uh, topic for the day is kind of decision-making thought processes that go into scanning patients with implants, devices, items that may or may not have some labeling. Uh, we were joking, actually. Well, we really weren't joking. We were talking before we started the podcast of, um, you know, understanding risk versus benefits and my question was, did Carl actually understand the risk benefits when he started working with Howard? <laughs> and so, <laughs> well, you know, maybe he understood the benefit, maybe he understood the risk, maybe not so much the benefit, right? <laughs> That's right. All important. <laughs> so Kristen, I know there was something you were saying that, that you had a uh, particular question about you'd like to get some input on. Why don't you start with that? Yeah, I, I think that, um, thank you, Bill. I appreciate that little introduction there. Um, I, I think that a lot of times when Bill and I work with facilities and do the risk assessment, um, we try to explain to them that when we're thinking about implants and devices, we're, you know, take kind of doing a deep dive, you know, and looking at the th- three strong magnetic fields, you know, the B0, the time-varying gradient magnetic field, the time-varying radio frequency field. And, you know, we do kind of like a process of elimination. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, all being trained in depth in this is, is really important to understand. You know, if, if I can take the Ferris property out and I can X out the B0, then I only have to deal with the other two. And is there going to be vibration? Um, you know, what's is, is there multiple fields that will be, you know, Um, actually affected by this. But one thing that people don't think about a lot is, you know, we kind of have this umbrella of um, passive implants and active implants. And what I have been told is that we know that um, in general, passive implants, if you were to have more than one, are less problematic then A, if you have one passive implant and one active implant, let's just think about where they are, what they're doing in relation to the radio frequency coil or so on and so forth. But then very problematic thinking about two active implants and two different active implants. And since they're not 
tested together, are they truly conditional? So, you know, let's, Carl, let's go with you. You seem to be the person that might be the best to go ahead and dive into that one. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, certainly with uh, active, multiple active implants, I think it, it can be a concern. Um, and I would say, you know, it's not just that they're active, but a lot of times active implants will have long leads that come from, the, from them. So if you think about pacemakers or neurostimulators, and then you know, one way that we look at this is, is really one, one big part of the equation is, you know, proximity, like how close are they to each other? So if they're, if they're very close to each other, there's the chance that they could, um, you know, they could affect each other. So the, the electromagnetic fields of one, um, the way it's modified for one, could actually, if they're very close to each other, could affect the other one. Um, and, but on the converse of that is if you have two things that are very far apart, you know, typically, um, we just take the most restrictive of the, of the one. So one example that I would give for that would be like, if you had a patient with like a deep brain stimulator and a pacemaker, an MR conditional pacemaker, for example, and the generator for the DBS was on one side of their chest and the pacemaker was on the other side, the leads don't really get close to each other. You know, that would be pretty, pretty okay. You just scan with the most restrictive uh, conditions for that device. So if, so if they are, I mean, one of the things that I've always kind of envisioned, and so Carl, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. So when you talk about the proximity, when you have a metallic item, whether it is, whether it's labeled for MR conditions of use or whether it's not, when you take that item and you put it in the patient, then it changes the RF uh, or the energy absorption, tissue absorption, SAR, around that device in a, in a literally unknown fashion, correct? That's correct. I mean, yeah. And you can, I mean, depending on how <laughs> the sophistication of how it was tested and modeled, you know, you can, you can kind of see how it's, how it changes it, um, the, the distribution, but yeah, exactly. Depending on exactly where it is in the patient, um, it, it's possible that it's not exactly known. Um, and a lot of devices, they just test and they, you know, they say, Hey, it heated up, you know, this much it's, you know, one degree C or something. So it should be okay. Um, but yeah, to actually get the distribution in it, it just modifies that the, those background electromagnetic fields. And, and then you don't know for that, the device next to it, if it's going to, how well it's going to affect it. Um, but it really, well, then, it's, it has to do with proximity. Sorry. <laughs> so that's all right. So that would be, that would be the thing. So if you yeah. have, you know, that would be kind of the underlying concern of this. You have two items. The, the SAR modeling is going to be, you know, the SAR, you know, distribution is going to be varied because you got a chunk of metal in there. You put them close together and that really would, to Kristen's point, throw any testing done for either item pretty much out the window because they didn't. Well, yeah, again, it depends on, <laughs> it, it does depend on proximity. I mean, I, and, and it also depends on, you know, how big the item it is. And kind of one interesting thing that's happened is that the FDA for very small objects and, you know, if they're not super close to each other, they actually don't even require manufacturers to test for heating anymore. Like if they're a couple centimeters or less in length. So that's, you know, again, it really, <laughs> I hate to give a hard not be able to give a hard number for this, but it really it really def- depends on you know size and and proximity for that. So I, I still think it's a good good thing to to point out because a lot of times um, at facilities that we speak with or we visit, you know they don't even think that you know they just say oh we meet all the conditions for active implant A we meet all the conditions for active implant. Um, B, so we're good to go. And then they don't take all these other things. So I think it's really important what you've just said, Carl. I mean, all that really adds together. It is what Bill calls famously a cause for a pause. And you really do have to break it down as far. And I think proximity is a huge one. Again, I think if you've got a passive and an active, I think that's much less problematic. It's really when we're talking about two active implants. And so, um, and as far as what you're saying about the SAR distribution, that um, that is a concern. Yeah, that's. That, I, I think that's very. I think you make a great point there. 
Well, I was just going to make the point that before this all started, I thought I was named as the passive implant on the panel, and you guys are all active. So I just wasn't going to say anything, and now I've, I'm beyond passive already. Sorry. You know, yeah, we're activate, we're activating you. I mean, well, because you know, the reality is for uh, for our listeners, uh, the radiologist has to be involved in this to a certain extent, only because, or, or if only because. The patient is, uh, you know, having an exam requested, and obviously, well, we don't know. Does the patient actually need this exam? Howard, do you, don't you think that sometimes that's something that's overlooked for people? It, it's that should be part of the discussion. Uh, Absolutely. The fact, and, I, and the fact that I've heard people say this, I've heard radiologists, sadly. Uh, say this kind of an analogy. Well, if you ordered a cheeseburger, you get a cheeseburger. Well, you know, the problem with that is the person, you know, charged with the responsibility of actually seeing that the patient undergoes a medical procedure safely would be the physician in charge of that, which would be the radiologist. So the radiologist has to be brought into this kind of a discussion from the standpoint of, is this a medically necessary or clinically warranted exam? Well, that's exactly right. And the radiologist, I guess, ultimately bears the, the, the medical legal responsibility. But I think, you know, when you're doing MR, I think it's incumbent on you to have a system to help scan everyone who needs it without hurting anyone. And unfortunately, that means that uh, you sometimes need to spend a lot of time digging into the exact devices. Uh, can we identify this? What is the configuration? Let's look at some plain films and try to figure out where these things are. And, you know, in our system, uh, we're quite fortunate. We have a safety nurse who's extremely knowledgeable with years of experience and binders of stuff from different manufacturers. We have uh, technologists who are really smart and the ultimate person who puts the patient in the magnet. So they take a lot of responsibility. And then we have uh, people like Carl Vegan who, you know, really helps us with these difficult or hard to sort out cases where maybe there's nothing published, but you have to go back to basic uh, physics uh, and understand what the risks may or may not be. So having that system in place, you know, the radiologist, really important, but you know, I, I I like MR safety. I pay attention to it, but I, I need experts like Carl and like my nurse, Kelly, uh, who have a special training and information in this area. So it takes a team to make sure we scan everybody who needs it and don't hurt anyone. One of the things I'm going to throw back to Kristen for a comment on, because I know this is something that we cover uh, pretty extensively in some of the training materials that we put together. In fact, we just did one here recently that addressed the overall uh, organization from an MRI safety standpoint. Um, we see a lot of sites that have portions of this, but don't necessarily have have all of it. And I think uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison's facilities here do, in fact, reflect the way that uh, that we see things that uh, the way things should work and for for those people listening we're going to put a couple of resources on uh, on the website under this particular topic uh, one of them uh, it may have been under another one because we were talking about something similar a while back but uh, particularly for the way we're going to be what we're talking about right now in organizational is responsibilities for MR safety management. And this was the document that originally uh, defined MR safety officer, MR uh, medical director, MR safety expert, and uh, talked a little bit about how they work together. This is the document from which the ACR directly drew the terms MR safety expert, MR safety officer, MR medical director for their current uh, MR safety manual. And then we're also going to put just a little uh, PDF file of an organizational chart that uh, I'd like Kristen to speak to. You can kind of vision that in your mind there and, and speak to how we think the organization should be arranged. And then we'll, we'll get these these folks' opinion on it. If they don't agree with it, we won't put it up, but, you know, whatever. Why would they not agree with us, for goodness sake? I don't know. I don't know. And I'm actually going to add to it. We're not just a rubber stamp just, here, you know. 
<laughs> Your Highness, you'll get Howard. the moment, okay? Just just go ahead, sit yeah. back. Enjoy the stamp safe. for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it um, should be if it's just rubber and wood and a little well, egg. You know, and if Howard's head's nodding, it's not because he's agreeing. It may just be he's napping. Nodding off for a nap or something. We'll, we'll, but if it's we'll black ink it. on the stamp, will it get smeared in the in the magazine? That's the question. <laughs> if the stamp falls, will nobody hear it? Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's it's okay. I'm I'm enjoying the uh, the banter, so to speak. Um, <laughs> so Bill and I do. We you know we did a, a big talk um, for a large organization last week, um, and. It's something that we do um, along the lines with a lot of administrators at facilities. And we have this organizational chart, and we are going to put that up in supplemental materials because it is just a nice um, thing. Because Bill and I, nothing makes us cringe more. And please don't respond, Carl or Howard, if you have this. We do not just like a radiology safety group. We like to have a specific MR safety designated committee literally just for MR. And um, obviously we like for the front end, whoever does the phone calls a few days before, whoever's researching the inpatients that are going to be done the next day, um, we like for them to catch these implants and devices early. Um, If it so happens, the technologist that's about to scan the patient, they find out we like for them to have a direct line of communication with a dedicated MR safety officer. Then obviously the MR, then that allows the technologist, according to the ACR manual 2020, according to the ones previous to that, the guidance documents, verbal and visual with your patient at all times. So it doesn't take away from the patient. So they hand that off direct line to the MR safety officer who then goes through and maybe Carl, you come in at this point, you can speak to this in a second. Then you actually, the MR safety officer actually goes through, finds as much information as possible. And then there's another direct line. If you're all envisioning this chart with me, um, there's another direct line that would go either to the MRMD or to the radiologist that's supervising that patient for the exam. So there are those direct lines of communications. And then we kind of see as a dotted line, and Carl, I feel like you're a solid line here, so don't feel slighted, um, <laughs> more, more of a consulting role at a lot of facilities that are um, not like the kingdom, we're going to call it from now on, um, where there is more of a consulting role as far as like a physicist involved. But, you know, with your being the MR physicist on site, the clinical support that you do, I mean, you have a you know, wide range of things that I know that you do well at all of them. So you probably in this situation would have a direct line. I'm going to give you, I'm going to throw you a direct line, but a lot of facilities they just have them as a consulting role and they don't make a lot of decisions. They don't make decisions about implants and devices where you do as far as helping the radiologist make final determination. Um, not only do we think that there, there needs to be a dedicated MR safety committee, but when things um, fail and there are things that slip through the cracks, we like for that to be documented, but we also like documentation and follow-up that actually shows you know, this is the email correspondence that was sent out. This is how we've rectified it. So this has been taken care of because you can meet once a week. If nothing changes, nothing changes. And so I'm not sure what your setup is there. And, you know, Howard, I, I feel like you're being left out and I would never do that to you. So <laughs> Howard, if you just want to, you know, go ahead and pipe in and then Carl or you you guys pick, you work together. Well, Carl, I'll let you take it away. We, okay. we do have a, a good safety committee and Carl is a key part of that as a vice chair. Yes. Well, thanks, Howard. Yeah, we, as Howard mentioned, we do have a MR safety committee. Um, and it is a, an institution-wide committee. So we have, you know, we have a couple of hospitals, a number of clinics, and, and we have representatives from all the locations. And we also try to have represent representatives from all the radiologist sections as well on this committee so that, you know, anyone can provide input. Um, and we, you know, we do, it's, it's primarily, as you mentioned, I think a sort of a policy and guideline setting organization and, or a committee. Um, we do review if there are you know, fortunately, there <laughs> we don't have very many safety incidents. But if we do have any safety incidents, uh, we try to meet 
you know, quarterly or so. And, and we try to review those incidents um, when we have our committee meetings. And again, fortunately, we don't have very many. And sometimes uh, the docket is empty for those. So that's that's always a good sign when that when that happens. Um, and these are usually minor things or near, near misses um, that we that we review. Uh, but yeah, and I think it's important to have, you know, again, have a, a structured committee. We have a, we generally have a radiologist that's the chair of the committee and then a physicist um, that's the vice chair of the committee. So we sort of have gone with that organization. And we do have uh, technologists and nurses and yeah. uh, even administrators uh, in charge of, say, research facilities so that there's input everywhere and we like we accept uh questions as you know the next uh, meeting approaches so that anything that comes up something new you know n95 masks in the pandemic you know whatever it is uh we'll take that and then update our policies and procedures as we go cardiac devices or what have you and i think one of the key things is that this committee uh according to the hospital policy is in charge of mr safety and what that means practically speaking is, uh, you know, this committee and the people involved are in charge and this gives power down the line to the technologists when when the orthopedic surgeon and the neurosurgeon says, put them in the magnet, I don't care about your safety thing. It's like, well, it's a hospital policy. We we cannot uh, do that until these these steps are taken and we, we ensure safety and nobody can go around us that way. I think that's a very important point, and I, I would like for everybody listening to, to take notice of that. Uh, we get questions all the time about, well, what do you do when this person insists this, or you know, nursing wants this, pharmacy wants this, and you know what what this tells us, and what I see is that the the MRI department basically has no backing from anyone um, when. If you're being asked to look at policies, procedures from a safety standpoint from outside of MRI that is addressing a convenience issue for some other department, that is a, that can become a major safety problem because if you're allowing somebody's viewpoint of what's convenient to interfere with what you do from an MR safety standpoint, that creates an extreme risk. One of the things I've noticed, and so you guys can tell me if I'm wrong here, but I hear the people making up this MR safety committee are people who are involved in MRI on a day-to-day -day basis in some fashion or another. You're not involving some outside uh, of MR people who want to influence your MR safety conditions. Am I correct in that because I think that's that's where people can go astray when they say well we like to involve you know every you know other departments from nursing and and anesthesia in our safety decisions like why well, <laughs> you know we, they don't ask you they don't ask you to participate in their freaking committees right? we, we have a rule we have somebody at the door for the committee and they check <laughs> anybody anybody wearing tasseled loafers or has a plum colored suit <laughs> with a clipboard doesn't get in <laughs> Another thing that you guys mentioned in your um, comments on this this topic was, yeah, I mean, if you do what you should be doing here, and it sounds like you are, yeah, you have very few incidents, and sometimes, like you say, fortunately, that that part of the doc had nothing to report. But you did use a term that I um, is again a big point of mine with a lot of our clients we work with. And that was the term near misses or minor incidents. And typically, y'all can tell me, I, I, I bet I can envision what these kind of are. When, when we recommend to clients of what they include in their safety monitoring, uh, I always recommend that they include anything that goes against a policy. In other words, we have a policy that states um, uh, you know, anyone going into this, anyone going into the scan room, accompanying the scan room, into the scan room with a patient, must be changed into scrubs. I'm just making that, you know, as a, as a uh, example. And then all of a sudden, you notice that in one instance, somebody has allowed somebody to come in, and they're a 
they come into the control room, but they're not changed into scrubs, and they're going, oh, we're, we're going to go in, they were thinking they were going to go into the magnet room. You, you go, no, 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 stop, you've got to change. So in other words, there's something that kind of almost violated the policy or could have possibly violated the policy. To me, that's a, that's a minor, but it's an incident, and you need to look at it and go, why did that occur? So that these things don't occur. What's your thoughts on something like that? I mean, that's that maybe is a poor example, but I'm just saying something happens that, quote, violates your policies or procedures. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great example, or that's a good uh, criteria, I guess I would say, to, to use for that. Um, and kind of an, another interesting thing is that occasionally we'll have something that really, it almost like finds a hole in your guidelines or your policies, right? So it's something that's not in policy and it's not in your guidelines. And it's sort of a, huh, how did this, you know, happen? It's just, it's it's sort of a good example. Hey, we need to tighten up you know, our, our policies or how we, how we practice certain things, you know, let's say when the patient gets screened, you know, in some sort of complex case. So, um, you know, those, those are some, some other examples of, of things that we, that can happen, I think. And, you know, we're talking at facility level, uh, we're lucky cause we, you know, we do many tens of thousands of MRs a year. So we have that kind of economy of scale so we can have a system with a fantastic, uh, safety nurse team and, and, you know, obviously our great techs, but also physics backup, you know, and we do see smaller places, uh, Maybe appropriately, they just won't deal with some of these devices. They throw their hands up. They don't. And, and maybe that's okay. But we, we like to be able to scan anybody who needs it. So we put in the effort. I think, uh, Carl, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but just in our screening process, uh, we kick out something like four or 500 cases a month that go to the safety nurse uh, screening level uh, to investigate specific devices. So for us, it's well worth it, and there's plenty of work to do, <laughs> and and we we feel it's appropriate to help serve serve the patients and maybe patients who've been told they can't be scanned somewhere else. They're so grateful that we went to the effort to investigate it, and yep, we can do that safely. I think that's a so there's there's two points here I'd like to tease out. I mean, so I think there's two things. Uh, Howard made a, made an excellent point. Not surprising, but you know that that some sites, it's complicated. It's it is really complicated, and they don't have the uh, MR safety expert to fall back on to say, well, let's contact them, let's talk to them, or the radiologist doesn't have a lot of experience with it, and so they say, you know, we don't feel comfortable doing this. Uh, you know, we'd recommend, you know, the patient go, you know, go to some other place. And I wish sites would do that as opposed to just saying, nope, we're not scanning the patient. Well, you know, like why, what can, so what's the patient to do? I see that, you know, follow through. There's, if you're going to do that, then give the patient another, another option. Uh, if you, if you can't do that, I know there are a lot of sites and these are mostly small outpatient facilities that go, well, you know, even with a conditional uh, MR pacemaker, we don't feel comfortable because we don't feel that we can adequately monitor the patient during the scan. Okay, great. That's fine. <clears throat> make, you know, help make the patient some other arrangements to get them done as opposed to just going, nope, not going to do that. And then, but the other thing is, and I've seen this, I we deal with this a lot because we also do work for some uh, device manufacturers and working through the device manufacturer, we've had to do some education for sites who are saying, basically say, well, we have to modify our protocol to, and maybe this is a good get feedback from you guys. We have to modify our protocol and our radiologists won't let us modify our protocol. They insist everybody be scanned this way. Well, you know, you got a patient with a particular implant or device, you, you may have to modify your protocol to answer the clinical question for the patient. So I would be, Carl, this would be an interesting question for you and, and Howard as well. I mean, it would be, is it, would it be a true statement to say it would not be uncommon for patients in complicated or difficult kind of implant device situations where you actually do have to do a different protocol and maybe you don't get as many series as you normally do. Maybe you have to go to thicker slices and change, you know, just kind of some general 
protocol parameters that are not exactly what you want to do on a routine basis, but that's okay because it answers the clinical question for the patient. I, I, I want to, before we go to Carl right. and we go to Howard, um, and well, I thought Carl that. all of a sudden his voice got real high there. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, are you okay? Uh, ha, ha, ha. I'm fine. Um, I'm still here. Okay, good. I was taking a deep yeah. breath in. I was about to answer. Okay, now do I sound more like him? I don't know. I sound more like Howard doing ho, ho, ho at Christmas or something like that. Um, now you made me lose my train of thought. No, first of all, um. One thing that I know from um, definitely we've done a podcast with you, Carl, before and Howard, we um, have the blessing of having you with us all the time. Um, it is a blessing. It is. It blessing. is. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just thanking everything right now for him. Curse. But one thing that you guys have to realize, I want you to take yourself outside of the kingdom right now. Okay. <laughs> because this is something that Bill and I run into all the time. Now, we understand if there is an implanter device that the conditions say you must have this type of monitoring equipment or you have this type of this, but they say no constantly. And you know, to me, it's a delay in care. They don't really put the effort in. And I know that you guys have this fantastic um, process in place. But how could you drive that home to facilities that aren't doing this, that aren't doing that due diligence to do the right thing for the patient? Because I really do see that, um, you know, a lot of places. Bill, do you agree? Oh, absolutely. And that's what I was referring to. The easy, the easiest answer is no. And and we're not talking about difficult conditions of use here. We're, we're talking about modifying B1 plus RMS or SAR, um, depending on the, the particular device or system, or uh, one that is not uncommon for many neurostimulators is a 30-minute um, active scanning, cumulative tapping time is the way we like to refer to phrase it. And after 30 minutes, uh, some of the devices are pretty simple. You only have to wait about five minutes or so, but some of them can be waiting up to an hour before you do additional sequences. And so that's what I'm talking, you know, that's where I'm really talking about modifying protocols, which means you can still get a diagnostic study. You're just going to have to do a little work, you know? Yeah, I think that Go ahead, Carl. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, I was just, <laughs> I mean, Howard can speak to this from a radiologist side because definitely we have had situations, exactly what you said, Bill, where there is a time limit and, you know, maybe the protocol that was prescribed was a little bit longer than that. And and we do, we go back to the radiologist and say, hey, are there any sequences that you can trim from this? Um, and it, it is, you know, there is also the, the other flip side of that is that, yeah, we do try to stay in that time limit. Um, because that is following the MR conditions. But there have been cases, let's say, you know, in a hospital setting where a patient is under anesthesia and the radiologist is like, yeah, I really need this one more scan to make the diagnosis. And, you know, if you need to go an extra few minutes, it's probably fine. But again, it's the radiologist, like Howard, that has to make that call. Well, and it, it reminds me of, I think, a, a joke that Bill told me at some point. Uh, <laughs> how, many, how many radiologists does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Uh, so <laughs> the point is that you don't want to wait till the, the patient's on the table and then you realize, oh, my God, this standard protocol isn't going to work. So I think one of the things we've worked on really hard and it's worth putting in the time prospectively is a, a menu of protocol options for different situations. You know, everybody has like, OK, you can bail out to this moving patient protocol or whatever, but also uh, here's our low SAR protocol here's a fast protocol that you can do in an unsedated child in two minutes. You know, this is when you need to use a TR coil. These are the sequences that work best for us in this uh, situation. So having these things sorted out well ahead of time and then protocoled in advance of the patient arriving, everybody knows what's going to happen and you don't fluster uh, people who may not know and they're too embarrassed to say they don't know. They just say, let's not do them. That's the worst possible outcome. You know, that's that's our point, I guess, is that, you know, if you can do it, if you can do it, if you have the uh, 
the capabilities at your facility. And I realize, again, certain facilities, very small facilities, and perhaps it's a single technologist with a receptionist up front, you know, I mean, from, you know, the very, very extreme of that. And yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, yes, they need to go someplace else. And I think what I would encourage sites to tell people is, uh, basically, there's no problem with telling them, yeah, you, you know, uh, we can't accommodate the, you know, the conditions required for this, your particular implant or device. And, but here's somebody that can. And I see, I think that's what facilities need to do rather than just tell them, no, it can't be scanned. It's not true. It can't, it, that may not necessarily be true that it can't be scanned. One of the things that I'd like to <clears throat> talk about next before I go on to, some of the other items that I have down here on the list is uh, conditions of use as it relates to SAR versus B1 plus RMS. Bill, um, I literally yes. just, I wrote that down. I did because I didn't see it on the original list, but um, I don't, uh, you know, Carl and Howard, we have people that try to achieve, even if it just says, you know, B1 plus value of 1.8 microtesla, SAR, you know, at 0.1 watts per kilogram, they try to achieve both at the same time. And we know that unless the conditions of use state, which I don't know that I've seen, that you have to, you know, achieve both of those in order to safely under those conditions scan the patient, you just need to go with one or the other. You would be so surprised at how many people that say, well, you know, I can get the B1 plus but I, I'm unable to achieve the SAR. And we're like, you don't have to achieve both of those in order to conditionally image that patient. So, I, I, Bill, I don't. it wasn't on the original notes we had, but I literally have no. like checked off. So we're thinking on this, we're on the same path today. Yeah, I know. It's frightening. I actually just wrote it down. Carl, if you give us a, a good overview of what B1 plus RMS actually is. Yeah, sure. So um, B1 plus RMS is is basically a measure of the the magnetic field component of the of the radio frequency um, RF that you that you're transmitting into the patient, and it's as Kristen mentioned, it's in microtesla. So it sounds really small. Um, it's much smaller than the say the main static magnetic field, which is in Tesla. But it's um, it sounds small, but it is it's time varying. So it's 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 res it's at a frequency of you know whatever if you're at 1.5 t it's around 64 megahertz, um, and so that has implications for heating and so on. But that's that's the actual sort of magnetic field um, that the that your your protons your spins will see, um, and that's a much it's kind of a more accurate uh, measure of you know if you did have an implant for example you know what what would be what kind of currents and heating would be induced on that implant. So it's it's considered a more accurate measure. Now, the SAR, as Kristen mentioned, the SAR limit is, um, you know, you can have a, that's a different, it's a different uh, metric. It's, uh, you know, in watts per kilogram and the, the implant vendor can have a different number for that or a different label. And and it really, it isn't really necessary, as she mentioned, to, to achieve both of those. You just need to do one of those. And, and typically the the SAR limit will actually be more conservative, um, and and the reason one of the reasons for that is that that's also dependent on, for example, patient weight, um, and you know, and so you know, um, there could be they have to put more, you know, kind of a more restrictive limit for a SAR, you know, for because there could be heavier patients. But B1 plus RMS uh, really is is more patient independent, um, and so we always we like to you know the scanners that we scan are patients with implants on allow us to specify a B1 plus RMS limit. So if, if our implant has that, we always, we always go with that first because that'll typically um, not be as restrictive, but it'll still be safe, but it's just not, um, you don't have to worry about the patient weight. It's, it's patient weight independent. Um, but if, again, some implants don't have, have that labeling, so we do have to limit based on SAR. And then there's some scanners, you know, if it's an older scanner, um, you know, it's possible it doesn't, you know, display the B1 plus RMS, and then you have to go on SAR, um, but you know most modern scan or most scanners, you know, hopefully within the last you know few years, um, will actually allow you to set the limit on either. Um, and so we always try to set the B1 plus RMS limit. 
the, the thing about B1 plus RMS that I think is important for everyone to understand is B1 plus RMS, as Carl says, measure of magnetic field strength. It's patient independent. It has nothing to do with the patient. It also really has nothing to do with the main magnetic field. Uh, 1.8 micro Tesla on uh, a GE is 1.8 micro Tesla on a Siemens. It's, it's a measure of magnetic field strength. The devices tested to this metric uh, we're going to have, we'll have more accurate, in, in certainly in our opinion here on the panel, more accurate uh, reflection from a safety standpoint than those based on SAR, which is uh, includes assumptions based on patient circumference, tissue conductivity parameters, again, B0 and stuff. But B1 plus RMS is just the... the magnetic component of the RF, which is what we use for imaging. We really wish we didn't have an electrical component. It just presents problems for us. But <clears throat> but the B1 plus RMS is is indeed the condition of use that, that one would want to go by. So uh, that's, I wanted to bring that up. If I can, um, why don't you spend I, a little bit oh, of time on the positively ro rotating component? And that's what we're concerned with. Yeah. Howard, go ahead for a I, I'm not positive, but <laughs> I, was, I was just going to ask a, a pause here and ask Carl, you know, if if you're asked to design a conditional protocol and, you know, it's going to be a low SAR or limited B1 RMS protocol, can you just remind us some of the series or types of pulse sequences that you include or don't include and whether you alternate, you know, fast spin echo with gradient echoes, that sort of thing. You know, when you approach these very limited protocols, what kind of tricks do you have in your physics bag to make them work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, yeah, if, you know, you as we're talking about the B1 plus RMS and the SAR, um, those are all RF dependent parameters. So any sequence that is playing a lot of RF, that's going to be problematic. So things like fast spin echo, um, especially, um, you think of all the, the, the 90 degree and 180 degree or so refocusing pulses, um, those are going to really limit you. And so things like gradient echo sequences with lower flip angles, um, those are beneficial. You know, Howard's a, a neuroradiologist, so you know, diffusion weighted um, imaging is good. He's he's got it easy there. Um, yep. Things like a, a Bravo. <laughs> That's or, good. That's a good thing. <laughs> I'm on easy street. <laughs> and just, the perfusion, just do a diffusion you know, and get him out of there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the you know the DSC perfusion sequence or the dynamic susceptibility contrast. You know, neural perfusion sequences are good um, because those are using EPI, which you know EPI sounds bad. It makes a lot of noise in the scanner. But those are just the gradient switching. It, it really doesn't use a lot of RF. And so that's also, you know, from an RF point of view, that's a, that's a really good sequence. Um, you know, I mentioned what gradient. Things, so things like MP Rage and, and Bravo sequences are, are good as well. And I, I got confused a little bit by, you know, some of our 3D sequences that have a, a variable flip angle or a different readout. So things like... Uh, Siemens Space or Philips Vista or GE's Cube sequences where we get these really nice volumetric T2s. How do those line up in terms of SAR compared to a traditional fast spin echo or, you know, the lower gradient echo? Yeah, those are actually really good too. So that sort of is <laughs> the exception that maybe proves the rule. But, um, you know, the FSC, like the fast spin echo, as I mentioned, has a lot of kind of the high flip angle 180 and, and, um, 150 uh, refocusing pulses, and those are those are just really bad for SAR. But those sequences that Howard mentioned, like Cube and Space, um, those those use um, play some tricks to use these really low angle refocusing pulses, and 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 it, those turn out to not be very SAR intensive or RF power intensive, and so those those do end up being very good. And then you have the benefit you have a a volumet volumetric scan, and you can reformat those as well, and so you don't have to acquire a lot of extra extra planes and with those. One of the things I want to mention as an exception to the gradient echo rule is uh, balanced gradient echoes. Um, the, this would be Fiesta on a GE, uh, TrueFisp or KISS, 
uh, on a Siemens, uh, a lot of the other vendor, uh, SSFP is an, actually an older balanced, term. It's also balanced FFE yeah. and balanced TFE on the Philips. So anything with balanced or SSFP, uh, but again, Fiesta, uh, KISS, uh, CIS, KISS, whatever you call it, on Siemens, those those are the big exception on the gradient echo side because these things have extreme, relatively high flip angles considering the TR. The, the, these things work best when the TR, the TE is always one half the TR. So the shorter the TR, the better the image quality. And so you've got TRs on the order of six, seven milliseconds and flip angles on the order of 45. So is it not true that those things are, those things are pretty dang SAR and B1 plus RMS intensive for that matter? Yeah, that's correct. That is that is the exception on on the gradient echo side. That's usually those are included with the gradient echo family usually. And so, um, yeah, just the the high RF or the large RF flip angles and the the really short TRs too. You're just you're just playing that RF like very frequently. And so, um, again, yeah, very high SAR and B1 plus RMS intensive sequence. So that's a good thing to kind of keep in mind, folks. So in general, when we say you know fast spin echo, turbo spin echo sequences are pretty SAR, you know, SAR intensive, that sort of thing. A lot of RF, so a little higher B1 plus RMS values. That's generally true with the exception being the, the 3D variants of them. Um, then with gradient echoes, those things are generally not so much uh, SAR, B1 plus RMS intensive, but the exception being the being the balanced gradient echo version of that. So uh, I'm glad we brought that up because there are some exceptions to that. One of the things I wanted to talk about before we uh, we're getting kind of the end of here, and I wanted to a uh, couple of things, if we, can, if we can squeeze them in. If not, maybe we can come back and do another uh, podcast on this stuff. Um, and these are some of the kind of obscure items are the things that crop up every now and then that can, can prevent, can present problems. And the one I'm talking about, cause this came up in a conversation with myself and somebody else the other day of external fixation devices. So you've got these orthopedic surgeons that have these external fixators on people and these external fixators can be uh, either labeled as MR conditional or they may just not be labeled. And one of the labeled ones that I'm aware of is made by a company called Depew Synthesis, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And these particular external fixators say that you can, you can scan them as long as you don't put the fixator in the bore of the magnet, which to me means that they're more concerned about, you know, radio frequency interference with these fixators, again, assuming it has not got a magnetic component. We'll talk about that in a minute because some of them do. So, so Carl and Howard, do you guys ever run up on this situation where you've got this fixator thing and they want an MRI? Yeah, we do. We, we have, and that, that, um, <laughs> that uh, model that you mentioned is exactly the one that our orthopedic surgeons use. And, um, and we've had <laughs> wonderful. issues with that too. Yeah, yeah wonderful. <laughs> so um, yeah, you mentioned a great point that there are some that are, you know, just not not tested or not labeled, um, and some, you know, obviously if they do have ferromagnetic components, uh, we don't we don't put those in. Um, and then the ones like you mentioned that oh they have to stay outside the board, but that's not helpful if uh, <laughs> you know you want to try to image what <laughs> what the, the fixator is being used for um, or close to then, it. Yeah, and then um, there is you know there are one or two models that do actually do have MR conditional labeling and. And they usually have like a lower SAR, um, you know, limit limitation to them. So that again suggests that you know it is the RF heating that's the a major concern for those. And just to give, it is really frustrating for us, but I think also just to sort of as the the flip side is, I think again because these devices are you know very configurable, it's I think you know I've always sort of assumed that one reason why there's not good labeling for them is it's very hard to test because it's. It's hard to test in a very yep. large number of configurations, and it's you know what? Like what Harry, <laughs> looks like Harrington rod. Harrington, you know, Harrington rod. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Um, so you mentioned something really um, interesting, Carl. And Bill, I want you to to discuss this first, and then we'll lead back into Carl. So Carl was talking about, you know, I believe what he said, and yes, I was paying attention, but um, I believe he said that you know if they're 
not tested, maybe you don't scan them. But before we get to that part, and you can correct me if I heard you wrong, but why don't you talk about um, what untested and unlabeled, it does not necessarily mean that it's not safe. It just hasn't been tested. Why don't you speak a little bit to that? Because you've been in a working group, you've, you've you know been involved in some of that, and then maybe get you know Howard and Carl's feedback, maybe to finish this kind of up on, on how that's handled. Well, I mean, that's just the thing. Uh, the uh, First off, everybody needs to understand the FDA doesn't test anything. The, the FDA uh, d- controls what the manufacturer of a device can advertise something of for that device, for anything that's labeled, how labeling that comes with that device. The FDA recommends that uh, manufacturers of devices test them for MR safety, but they don't require that. And so there are a lot of things that are, there's a fair number of things that are just simply, you know, not tested. Um, you know, an example, I had a friend of mine that had a, a, a total shoulder uh you know, replacement. It had no MR labeling, but I told him, I said, you, you know, you need, if you're going to have an MRI, you need to go to a place that does a lot of this stuff because there's probably no reason they can't scan you. Uh, just doesn't, just because it doesn't have testing doesn't mean that's unsafe. However, uh, it, it does mean that you have to know more about the device. And the thing that came to my mind, I just made a note of it on this and Carl to get your feedback on this is things made of graphite. I mean, especially if you got these circular rings, you know, large uh, closed looped items, people think, oh, graphite, it's not ferrous. Yeah, but graphite's conductive as crap. Am I not correct yeah, on that? it is. And I, um, <laughs> you know, I'm sort of like, I can't think of a situation recently where we've had to encounter graphite, but yeah, it, it definitely is conductive. Um, and so I would put it in, um, you know, the same sort of category as a conductor. But again, it's, you know, when you're looking at the devices, uh, what we do is we actually, you know, if it is an untested or unverified devices, um, you know, again, we'll help the radiologist kind of make a call on that. And we kind of look at, you know, what are the the materials that it's made of, you know, A, is it ferromagnetic? Um, and then B, you know, if it's conductive, you know, kind of what is it made out of? How big is it? You know, if it's really small, um, probably not going to heat up a whole lot. But again, there's there's multiple considerations that go into that. Well, that and where it is in relation right. to the RF coil. And yeah. Howard, you, you do rely on this kind of stuff to make your decision, I'm sure. That's true. But, you know, you, you got to be careful even if you have a conditional device like a Dupuy Synthes, uh, you know, external fixator. You know, the, the orthopedic surgeons make things work and they'll grab whatever they need off the shelf to hook that up to something else. So we've had situations where a conditional uh, fixator is in place. And when our techs check the patient with a hand magnet, when they come down, that magnet gets stuck to something <laughs> that, that's holding the fixator to another traction device or something. And so you you, you you've got to test every single component that they've put in there uh, to, to be sure that it's, it's going to not be uh, attracted at least. Let me, let me give you a personal, uh, I, I laugh every time I think of this, this particular scenario, this is back when I had a real job and I was, I was managing uh, imaging center at Erlanger medical center here in Chattanooga and the MR department and the neurosurgical group, there was only one neurosurgical group. The neurosurgeon calls me and, and you know, you know, I was a stickler for this kind of stuff. He said, I told him to put the MRI halo on this guy. And I go, okay, no problem. He says, so he's got the MRI halo on him because they had one that that was labeled. And I said, okay. So I went to check him. And at the time, we didn't have one of those big handheld magnets. We just had one of these little, oh, about the size of a pencil. You know, you get them in the hardware store. They're for picking up screws and stuff like that. And they're really not all that great for testing stuff, but you know, we had, it's what we had. This was back some time ago. Anyway, so I took it up and went up to the floor and, you know, I'm tapping around on the halo and yeah, no problem, no problem. And I put the thing on the, on the screw holding it to the guy's head and it's, it's ferrous as crap. All the screws are ferrous. <laughs> and so, uh, I, I call him back and I go, yeah, they put the MR halo on, but they use 
ferrous screws. And I won't tell you what he said because that wouldn't be appropriate on this podcast, but it's probably nothing in any MRI tech has not heard said. Um, but that's the thing. You, you have to test everything. You trust no one. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I we're aware of people who had issues, sites had issues because the orthopedic surgeons, they said it was okay. And unfortunately, sometimes you hear radiologists say, well, if they say it's okay, it's going to be on them. No, it's not. It's going to be on the radiologist. And you have to test everything. That's what the ACR says. Anybody else got any comments on that? Because I think this is an excellent take-home point. Uh, for this podcast. I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, way more common than external fixators. Um, uh, we have issues with ballistic fragments that are retained. And, you know, several of us have real world experience with, you know, reloading shells and can kind of try to figure out what that is inside the patient. But I don't know if anybody has a, a really great way to do this, but we we tend to uh, look at was this domestic or was it military? If it's military, it's more likely to be ferromagnetic. If it's domestic and we have little round splattered pieces that are mostly round, we figure that's probably going to be lead and it's probably going to be okay. Uh, we also look at where that fragment or fragments are located. Are they near something really critical if we're wrong and it moves? That sort of thing. But, you know, I don't don't know of any great guidelines. There was a paper recently by Fountain, I think, in one of the radiology journals that looked at some of these things. And we've actually gone to the uh, the state rifle range and uh, shot different <laughs> kinds of weapons into cool. uh, ballistic gel. And we, we, hit, we took a GoPro and we've got things exploding in time. Uh, so Richard <laughs> Bruce, who did that work, uh, is going to be writing it up. But we 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 don't want to deny MRs to folks who happen to have some ballistic fragment in them, and you know that's been our sort of general approach. We we have what uh, one of our radiologists calls the bullet brigade, and we, we look at plant films and and try to make an individual decision. I don't know if anybody what? else has a way to to do this better. <laughs> Well, a couple of things I wanted to mention about this. It, it turns out that um, over time, and I'm talking about more recent in the last maybe less than 10 years or so, that lead's becoming less common in in ammunition and more from a sporting standpoint uh, for peddling ducks and things like that. I've also heard Frank Shellock speak to this as well. But I do know that... Uh, because I, one of my hobbies is, is uh, handgun shooting. I don't have any rifles or shotguns or whatever they use, but I do know that uh, lead in bullets is, uh, from a domestic standpoint, it's actually becoming less common. Um, the other thing is that if it, I mean, it has been shown, at least in some papers that Dr. Frank Shellock has written, that if the um, metallic items are relatively superficial, that ferromagnetic detection devices have been shown to be uh, quite useful in some of this stuff. I don't know if that's ever come up, Carl, with you or, or Howard, you know, using FMD to assess some of these items. So um, to be honest, we actually um, haven't used FMD um, at our institution much. Uh, we have some affiliated hospitals that, that do use it. But um, in the past, uh, we've we have we've been a little you know this is many many years ago, um, just disappointed with some of the sensitivity of, of some of those devices and um, you know again I know that that some sites use that but it's it's not something that we've really explored too much yet. Well, I just uh, you know I think it's 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 one of those things yeah. that comes up a lot and I think Howard's point is you know kind of like what is it where is it you know yeah exactly and are they, are they awake can they tell us they're having discomfort yeah. they have to come out if if they're going to be under GA and it's near a vessel or it looks scary uh, they're probably going to get their question answered another way. Yeah, I think it's always a good, a really good question to ask for the technologists. If you're talking to your radiologist of this and they're kind of not really thinking, you know, kind of really telling you much, uh, a good question would be, well, if it moved, would it be a problem? You know, what do you think of that? If it moved, is that going to be a problem? 
or if it you heated know. up. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the thing that, the thing to think about heating is to Carl's point, remember if it's really small, you know, a lot of times you don't get, you know, again, uh, less likely, less likely to heat. It's, uh, you know, but again, how many of them are there and what's their configuration and that sort of thing. Um, we're really kind of at the end of this. We, I think we've talked about some good topics that we've not really discussed in uh, previous podcasts to this kind of detail. Uh, I want to thank everybody for participating. Uh, and let me just kind of go down the line here. Uh, Kristen, do you have any last thoughts before we put this one to bed? Um, well, um, I want to say that I think that... Um what did we say? King Howard of the kingdom. Is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm, I am going to ask for a Royal name that is not a Royal pain in the, you know what, for um, <laughs> my future um, name. And I just really want to thank Carl. I think um, always Howard, you are always valuable. I don't want you to feel slighted here. Um, well, but Carl, you've been the highlight. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, you've been the highlight well, of this. I just can't thank you enough for all the valuable information um, with your experience and your knowledge that you've given to us today. And uh, Bill, thanks, Bill. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> How about Kristen Chris, oh, okay. of the South? Kristen of the South. Doesn't that sound good? Yeah, like Kristen of the South. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to you on that one, okay? Okay. <laughs> Carl, thank you again. Any any final thoughts from, yeah. from you? No final thoughts. Just thanks so much for having me on. It's uh, been very enjoyable, and yeah, it's it's been a been a good time. And oh, join yeah. us for our next exciting episode. We'll talk about cochlear implants, magic oh, spinal rods, laser ablation <laughs> catheters, and the Codman Certivalve. Thank you very much. Well, there you go, folks. You can't, <laughs> you can't beat that. Now, just as a preview of all this stuff coming, got many more things that we can talk about. So once again, folks, we want to thank you for taking the time to join us. We want to thank Bracco again for their very generous support for this unrestricted educational grant to Kristen of the South, Howard of the North, and Carl Vegan of uh, the Vegan family. We really <laughs> appreciate everybody. Thank you all so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the MRI cast. Uh, Y'all have a great rest of the day unless you've got other plans we're out of here see you just get over it you've been listening to mri cast this program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from brocco diagnostics